Welcome to Talking Sock. Hailing from Western Australia, Leon Hendroff is a designer and material mastermind. Working in his family studio north of Perth, Leon is a designer for Spare Parts Puppet Theatre and a restorator of the historic Heartland Puppets. He handed over a whole lot of his puppets to me to try and keep this tradition of marionette art going. Join Leon and I now here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. My name is Pete Davidson, and today I'm joined by correspondence by Leon Hendroff, all the way from Western Australia. How is it going back there in the past? Welcome to the future. We're talking with a two-hour time difference. How are you doing, Leon? Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me. Um, it's it's great here in the past. I mean, you should be telling me what's in the future. What do I need to prepare for in two hours' time? Uh, well, if you're in Melbourne, rain. <laughs> Plenty of rain. Leon, where in Western Australia are you now? So I am in Quinns Rocks, which is about an hour's drive north of Perth. But yes, my work does take me all around quite a bit of WA to Perth to Fremantle quite a bit. And before all this lockdown around the world and around Australia. So, Leon, why puppets? So, puppets, why puppets? Good question. <laughs> it's, it's been a thing since childhood for me. Saw a puppet show put on by our primary school drama teacher at the time. And there was something about the animated characters that caught my imagination. And I think it's this interesting... Well, for me, um, not not for everyone, puppetry is not for everyone, but for me it is this sort of step further in theatre. For me it's quite interesting or rather more interesting to watch a puppet, like it's very watchable, watching a human actor walk across the stage as opposed to watching a puppet walk across the stage. It's quite mesmerising. It's a mesmerising art form that takes probably snippets out of reality and just takes it to another level for me. And that's why I love working in puppetry. That's a gorgeous answer. And you come from such a creative family. And I believe you actually work with your parents in this sort of perfect design symbiosis. Tell us more about that. Actually, the creativity starts from my grandfather, who when I preschool used to spend a lot of time in his graphic design and illustration studio this is back in Malaysia and I sort of have always grown up in this sort of creative environment my dad's an interior designer my mum used to do um, Chinese brush painting for many years now she has been involved in felt making and textiles So with an interior designer, textile artist and a puppetry artist, we have this design business that focuses on these three kind of main areas. And that's just gorgeous. And you live together, you work together. How much of an influence have your parents been on that sort of creative side of yourself and your career? Well, I guess it has been quite a big influence. I mean, it's great that we can work together and get along that way. And also that all our skills are quite complementary. 
it's also great to be able to have that creative sounding board close at hand because sometimes you can be working on something quite intensely all by yourself and then just to run it past a fresh set of eyes before it goes out to the public is is always a wonderful thing. But you didn't start in puppetry because you started more in graphics and illustration and I think you really came to puppetry after you graduated from Curtin. So can you tell us a bit about your journey into puppets and, and the skills that you have gained along the way? Yeah, so I, like many people growing up, I guess I thought that I wouldn't be able to make a living in puppetry. And so I always had an interest and this family background in graphic design and illustration. So it was sort of things that I was familiar with and skills that I had that I knew that I probably could use to make a living. So I went and studied that at uni. But even through uni, there was a designer who ran the unit on 3D design who had actually done a lot of design work for the Spare Parts Puppet Theatre here in WA. And so one of our projects in this design course was to design a puppet theatre, a mobile puppet theatre. So (laughs) I kind of went to graphics trying to escape puppetry and there it was again. (laughs) And so so I, yeah, I didn't really think much of it then, but the, I mean, the puppetry passion had always been there. Even after graduating from uni, I went and did graphics and illustration as a professional in the industry for several years before actually revisiting this passion and thinking, you know what, I'm going to give this a go. The passion is still there. Let's try because if, if you don't give a passion time, you'll never know where it will take you. And so your training didn't stop there, though. You had training from artists who came and visited Australia. And, I mean, there's a relationship there that started with spare parts and has been going ongoing for sort of 15 years. So what were the early days like and how did you seek out and find the information you needed on puppetry? So at that time, the head puppet maker at Spare Parts was a Czech artist um, from Theatre Drak in Prague. And his name was Jirka Smitko, which is not pr- not how you pronounce it, but that's the best I can do. <laughs> we always used to call him Jirka. So Jirka was the head puppet maker at Spare Parts, and he was a is a fantastic wood carver. Working with wood, he also used to build wooden boats, like real boats that you can sail. So at that time, a lot of the beautiful puppets that came out of spare parts were beautifully carved and a whole lot of wooden mechanics and technology. I was really interested in that. And he was one of the artists that I learned from, taught me how to carve my first puppet. And his technical skills were fantastic, which I still use today as well. Other artists that came to Australia from overseas, which were great influence, were the Chuanzhou Marionette Troupe from China. So in 2008, Perth hosted, I think it was then the 20th Unima Congress. And so one of the international guest groups that came was this group from China. And they did amazing things with marionettes. Marionettes pouring cups of tea into cups <laughs> and then picking up right. those cups and drinking that tea, <laughs> pulling swords from their holders and then putting it back in. 
all with strings. And so this, I mean, this really fascinated me. I've always been interested in marionettes, but I mean, this, this took marionette puppetry to another level for me. Mm. And so after this um, World Puppetry Festival and Congress in Perth, they actually ran a masterclass in Melbourne. So I was there. <laughs> so I was there to, to learn from them as much as I could, which was fantastic. I mean, let's get into the technicals of that. How did you, did you learn how to do that kind of manipulation? This is a puppet podcast, so we can talk about how someone gets a sword into its, its uh, sheath and how you pour and drink a cup of tea as a marionette. Did you actually learn the specifics of how they do that? We didn't get to do that ourselves. They showed us. It actually started off quite slowly because we went through about 2,000 years of history of puppetry in China. And uh, which was interesting too, but later we we had some hands-on experience with some of the puppets. So obviously our first time with quite unique controls, which was just a kind of like a paddle that looked somewhat like a squarish table tennis paddle with all the strings coming off it. So no fancy contraptions for leg movements or hand movements. We had to pick the strings individually with our fingers and form those kinds of configurations that these other more fancy controls do with our fingers, which was actually really eye-opening because sometimes with marionettes, when you're working through the strings, it's already so remote. Mm. So when you add another piece of contraption, like a wooden bar or a wire, which controls that string, it removes your touch or feel through the string down to the puppet even that little bit more. So this was great in that I guess it made us feel what that control piece is doing but we actually can feel it ourselves through our hands through our fingers and i think that's a great concept when especially when working with um, string puppets it sounds very similar to the kind of controls that philip huber makes in terms of the paddle style as opposed you know if you've got a contact paris in here philip huber's is all on one hand with the strings like you've mentioned Whereas someone like Ronnie Burkett would have a, a you know, a tilting, all-one-handed, trigger-based. It's it's complex. It's amazing. I was actually just yeah. at Danny Miller's house uh, the other day, and he was showing me the the, the different styles of, of controls and mechs associated with it. And I love the idea of the contact that that creates and how important gravity is to the marionette. And so this goes to another question, because one of your most famous and recognizable puppets is a giant marionette effectively that is um, pulled on cables and was very popular at a number of festivals. Can you tell us about that marionette and also the material choices that you went into with that marionette? Sure. So we are talking about String Symphony and the giant four meter tall puppet called Leo, which which is actually made out of over a kilometer of woven rope, hand woven rope. (laughs) <laughs> and oh, I didn't yeah. just weave it just for fun. <laughs> it, it actually symbolises the ropes coming together, all the 12 ropes that control it and the 12 individuals 
at the ends of each of those ropes, all coming together as one, working together as one. So this particular puppet, it's made out of garden materials. <laughs> it was made and designed for outdoor festival and events works. Here, like the, the Joondalup Festival that actually commissioned that, I mean, we, we've been rained out at festivals, we've had strong winds. <laughs> it's basically, so we made a, as weatherproof a puppet as possible. <laughs> the structures are made out of reticulation tubing, plumbing pipe, garden trellis. The, the rope is marine rope. And a lot of the fixings are actually fixings that you would find on ships sailing ships um so the pulleys the stainless steel um, clips and rigging previously i used to use cane which is a lot more traditional technique cane paper or cloth covered for structures but we actually here in wa went through a number of years where cane wasn't being brought in anymore right and so we had to well i I had to look for other materials um, during that time. And now that I've tried, for example, the reticulation tubing, I actually prefer it. I mean, it, it doesn't snap as easily as cane. It's lightweight as well, although there are properties of cane that the tubing doesn't have. Uh, so there's pros and cons of both. I'm really keen on your material approaches because I first met you properly at a workshop that you held here in Marrickville in Sydney run uh, through through Suji and through Unima. And I got to build the, the elements of my first sort of large-scale puppet and using the same techniques that you used in String Symphony I was blown away by the accessibility of the materials that you've come to become quite comfortable with. And it is, it's, it's hose piping, it's cable ties, it's garden trellis mess, it's rope, it's really things that are so easy to cut up and put together again. And, and I found the pace in which you can create and draft something so exciting. But you also do amazing work with polypropylene and with paper. Where did all this material knowledge come from and how did you develop it over time? And what are your preferred materials for working with puppets in different forms? I guess for to answer that question, we've got to take quite a few steps back, which is to say that most of my training has been kind of, or most of what I do has been self-taught. There hasn't been access to puppetry training as such um, here in WA and perhaps around Australia as well. I learned a lot of things from books, looking at other artists' work around the world, videos, and also just experimenting and playing with materials that were close at hand myself. And so that's where some of these material choices have come from. So things like paper and cardboard were close at hand. There were things that I had used in my graphic design and illustration days to mock up 3D models. And so that sort of method of pattern making with paper led me to want to find materials that could do the same thing for me, but on a large scale and also be more hardy, durable and weatherproof which led me to, for example, the polypropylene sheeting that you mentioned. 
which is quite similar to work with as cardboard. There are differences in the flexibility and folding of it, but it is probably one of the things that is probably most similar to working with paper. I guess from there, it kind of branched out to sometimes needing a bit more structure. Therefore, I would add a cane bone type structure inside. And then when cane wasn't available, it led to the um, reticulation tubing. I guess it's been this progression of what has been available. I think puppeteers are, and puppet makers especially are great at improvising with whatever's available because <laughs> there's this, there isn't this great, fantastic kind of wonderland puppet shop of no. puppet-making materials <laughs> specifically that you can go to. And so whatever serves the purpose the best, whether it's choosing a material for its weight or its durability or how you can manipulate it, I guess it's influenced by what you're familiar with, what skills you have that you know you're, you're strong with that you can translate into these materials. It kind of is an evolution, a choice of materials evolving. It really is something to say about Australian puppeteers in that, you know, we we make do. And in making do, we find those limitations actually open up capacities for us to innovate. And I think that's really, I think that you're the, kind of the epitome of that in a lot of ways. I want to quickly go back to String Symphony because I love puppetry that involves the participant and try puppetry for the first time in, in possibly in their lives. And so what I love about String Symphony is that it was such a participatory, uh, interactive piece of, of work and that you had people using sort of a rig surrounding, is it Leo? Leo, as they pulled and, and manipulated his arms and legs. And what was beautiful was that he was so lit up and created this sense of someone becoming a giant puppeteer. And that is so wonderful. So was that you that brought up the idea or was that idea already something in the forays of Joondalup's will and they wanted to make you be the person who executed it? How much of the creative input did you have? Well, actually, String Symphony started on a much smaller scale. I created this um, piece, a, a solo puppetry work for a festival called Proximity Festival which is a festival of works where one audience member interacts with one performer at a time. I created this work called String Duet, ah. which was a similar kind of puppet to String Symphony. It was a marionette suspended within a little wooden box frame um, with ropes split in dual control. So one set of one side of the puppet all its ropes came over to the performer's side and the other side of the puppet went over to the audience member's side and so it was this very intimate one-on-one uh, -on -one dialogue which didn't actually have any words it was just the two people bringing to life this one puppet through their nonverbal communication and feeling each other through the strings. When one person pulled, you could feel the pull coming through your strings. And so there was this whole give and take and this kind of nonverbal conversation played out. That was a really interesting experience. 
which a few people kind of mentioned after seeing it or having experienced it, that it would be wonderful to be able to, for more people to experience it. And that's where the idea of String Symphony um, came about, to take that, that smaller scale work and get more people involved. So instead of a duet, it became a symphony, a symphony of 12 people on the 12 ropes that control this puppet to bring it to life. I love the idea of nonverbal communication and, and communicating through the strings and the pull, the pull that a, a, a puppet can have on you is also elicited in that pull that you have on it. Ah, oh, gorgeous. <laughs> Look, we don't know a lot about festivals in WA. We're on the East Coast here and there's a big amount of distance between us. And so I would really like to talk to you and ask you more about your involvement with Joondalup and what other festivals are available to you as puppeteers in WA. Joondalup Festival has actually grown quite a bit in recent years and it has started to attract international and national um, interest and artists as well. It's been great Having a festival, so Joondalup is closer in proximity to me where I am in Queens Rocks than, say, Perth or Fremantle. And so it has been great to be able to work a bit more locally. And this festival has provided that opportunity. There are also, there's, of course, the the major Perth festival, like you have the, the Sydney Festival and Melbourne Festival, which has been great inspirations from artists coming from all over the world, including Royal Deluxe, which, which came to Perth some years back, which was absolute inspiration. There is also several Fremantle festivals, including the Fremantle Street Arts Festival, which um, specifically focuses on artists and shows, performers that work on the streets. And so that has been great inspiration for festival works. These are probably the, the major, major ones in WA, closer to Perth, that is, because WA is so big. <laughs> So there's the northern part of WA that has heaps of festivals themselves and there's the southern part of WA that that also has their own festivals. And because WA is so spread out and there aren't really many puppetry artists specifically, I guess these sort of festivals and events are also great opportunities for us to come together and see each other again just to provide that sense of community being so spread out. Would you consider yourself a puppeteer, a puppet builder? Do you, Would you consider yourself a puppeteer and builder that specialises in large scale? How would you brand yourself in among all these works that you've done? I guess recently I've just been calling myself a puppetry creator. I mean, a lot of my work is for festivals and events, but also I guess the the base of it still is in designing and making for traditional theatre performances. So I suppose puppetry creator kind of covers a few things, not just the designing and making, because the designing and making is also influenced by the direction, the performance, how things are going to be used. And before all that, deciding what things are going to be used, what sort of puppets, what sort of puppetry are we creating? It's quite a 
collaborative experience, which I'm sure you must have heard a lot in puppet theatre, which I think is important to this particular art form. While I do specialise a lot in maybe design and making, I do also perform the puppets. And I think as a designer and maker, it's important that you know how to perform a puppet because that will influence the design and making of it. As well as I've been interested in seeing how a lot of um, different artists direct and create works. That I think also has helped kind of inform and develop the design aspect for me in having this experience with these directors and creators as well. I mean, your other work comes down to designing spaces such as the foyer space at Spare Parts Puppet Theatre. And you've also done a number of Christmas window designs. And tell us about your relationship with Spare Parts and how you've managed to go into all these other facets of interior design from what you do with them. I guess I, I'm still designing for puppetry. So I, I wouldn't say I'm really getting into interior design as such. It's It's more designing interactive puppet displays for the foyer at at Spare Parts, um, which is not too far from designing interactive puppetry works like String Symphony, String Duet. As far as Christmas windows go, that actually stemmed out from the Unimar 2008 festival. So it's it's interesting where the journeys take you. <laughs> but during that festival, I actually teamed up with another artist, Brian Bolchen, and we both created puppets for a little puppet shop at the Unimar Festival because we felt that was something that was missing. I mean, it, there's like hundreds of puppet crazy, thousands of puppet crazy people coming from all over the world it's like, let's have a puppet shop. <laughs> so in the months leading up to that festival, we created a whole lot of quite simple, different kinds of puppets for sale. And so after that festival, we were left with a little bit of stock. We, saw, we managed to clear almost all of it during that festival. But after the festival, we, we had these few bits and pieces, which, um, which someone suggested that I try taking it to a shop to see if they might like to sell them. And so there's this lovely shop in, at that time, they had only a branch in Fremantle, but now they have expanded and the shop was called Remedy. And the owners weren't there at the time. So the lady in the shop passed on my details to the owners and maybe a week or so later I I get an email saying would you like to design a window for us with your puppets (laughs) and so that led to our first ever window together which was called their footpath gallery so we created a window for them right at the end of winter coming into spring and so I named it or rather I themed the window after every winter comes a spring and we use puppets we use marionettes we use hand puppets little finger puppets some shadow puppets and created this little display of a little sad downcast character going through a winter in its life and then on the other side of the window there was spring so the sun came out, the clouds cleared, it was full of colour, whereas the other scene was all in black and white. 
and it became this um, this thing that uplifted so many people going by, looking at it. During that time, they just had that one shop, but during that time, they were also expanding. And so they opened another shop in another part of Perth during that time of that window. And so they said, let's do something special for the opening Christmas window. And so that started the Christmas window displays for them, which have been going now for about 10 years, I think. So it's been a really interesting relationship and a really interesting journey. Do you think we need a a window display of after every winter comes a spring right now (laughs) in the midst of what everyone's going through? Yes, I think, I think we do. And we actually, I actually reminded the, um, the remedy owners of that recently when just before the lockdowns happened. And I think they posted something quite nice and encouraging on their, on their website about it. Oh, that's gorgeous. You are listening to Talking Sock with one orange sock and Leon Hendroff. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow one orange sock productions on Instagram. More with Leon in just a second. Want to start a conversation at your next gig or festival? Then grab your wallets because we've got merch. Head to our Redbubble store to get your hands on some signature one orange sock designs. We believe that podcasts should be advert-free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Leon Henderoff. We've been talking about large-scale puppetry and Leon's work in design. But now, Leo, you're a, our first guest from WA. And so I'm really keen to have a representative of each state from Australia on the show. So as our first guest from WA, would you be able to, in your own words, describe for us the puppetry scene of Perth, Fremantle and its surrounds and tell us what WA puppetry is? I think WA puppetry is quite diverse. Because we are so spread out here in WA, I think a lot of people work in isolation quite a bit. And so a lot of people are doing quite individual things. And occasionally we come together and we share those ideas and it grows from there. And I think because we are so spread out as well, we are a bunch of puppeteers who like to get together, that chance to see each other again and catch up and and share information. What would you like to see more of in puppetry in WA and in Australia? If you if you could make your magic wish for puppetry in Australia, what would it be? I would like to see more opportunities for education and puppetry, sort of formal trainings, bringing in more international artists as well, which the Spare Parts Puppet Theatre here in WA has been doing in recent years. And I think that sort of opening up opportunities for local puppeteers that maybe can't travel themselves, but then bringing in all this knowledge and these skills and these experiences in here to be able to share with with the communities 
within WA, within Australia, I think would really grow the puppetry community a lot more. But what has been great about the the fact that um, maybe Australia has been quite cut off from the rest of the world in terms of this particular art form is that it has kind of developed its own uniqueness, its own sense of experimentation, individual adventures and journeys in puppetry that maybe in other parts of the world that have a very long history and tradition in puppetry might or younger generations might tend to just follow that. Whereas in Australia, we're kind of making our own paths in this art form. Definitely. I think we so are. And that's potentially how we've become innovators, like we mentioned before. I'm really interested also in if you could bring an international artist, who would it be? Oh, where do I start? (laughs) Let's (laughs) just bring them all. (laughs) Well, I mean, sadly, one that is no longer with us that I would have loved to have learned from is Albrecht Rosa, the marionettist. But in terms of those that are still around, I would love to learn from the likes of Julie Taymor, Michael Curry. Mm. Recently, I mean, just a couple of years ago, we had the great opportunity to have Philip Hoover come to to Victoria. I feel like I need to ask you, as an extension of the question, why puppets? Why marionettes for you? Why is that the one? Marionettes. That So lots of people have asked me that. <laughs> The the answer has seemed to have evolved over the years, but what it does still come back to for me is um, I mentioned previously about the remoteness of the control of a marionette. And I think that is part of what appeals to me about the marionettes, the fact that you are kind of distant from the puppet and that for me gives it a little bit more illusion of life. A, a lot of puppetry forms these days exposes the puppeteer or the puppeteer is in very close and visible proximity to the puppet. Um, with marionettes, even if you are performing open stage style where you're seen with the marionette, the distance the strings give you between the puppet and the puppeteer for me creates that illusion of the puppet coming to life and having a life of its own. And sometimes performing a puppet, you don't always get to experience that illusion yourself. But for me, there are a lot of moments where that happens when you're performing a marionette. And although you know you are pulling the strings and holding the control, it takes on a life of its own. It, it, it feels alive for the puppeteer. And I think that's that's something that appealed to me from the start with marionettes specifically. I'm so glad I asked you that question. That was a beautiful response and such a poetic way of thinking about marionettes and the distance between yourself and the strings. I love that. Hey, Leon, it's time for our segment called The Geek Out, in which my guest and I mentioned something that has been getting us through social isolation. My geek out for this week has been Actually, it fell upon me this week. I We are moving house and in doing our exceptional clean out, we are going through a lot of the old papers and we almost burnt a magazine which ended up being saved for me by my housemates. It was an old copy of Australian Puppeteer, which was a Unimar publication 
that was around way back when. The last uh, copy I found was from 2006 and the other copy I found was from 1998. And who would I find in this magazine but the likes of Richard Bradshaw, Richard Hart, Philip Miller, Sue Wallace, Norman Hetherington, all these amazing names in puppetry that I've just been speaking with. And it has been a real journey checking these articles out. I saw Sue Wallace's write-up on her Churchill Fellowship that she did in 2005 about researching puppet centres all around the world. It was like accessing a puppet history, a puppet archive that made me gave me all the answers to the questions I'd already been asking. And so what I found out is that the Unimar website actually has archival copies of all these magazines that you can check out digitally. And so a Unimar Australia website is kick ass and has been an amazing piece of, of information and as a resource for me. So that's what I've been geeking out on. Leon, what you geeking out on? <laughs> well, in isolation, I suppose it, it's been similar to you. <laughs> it's just a, a, a larger version of a magazine. <laughs> So over the years, um, having to teach myself a lot of puppetry and the skills in it, I've amassed quite a collection of puppetry books. And um, I have been revisiting quite a few of those for inspiration and just to get that some of that excitement back again from, <laughs> from past artists and work that I've been looking at. So things like the, the book Playing With Fire on Julie Tamor. Oh, he's come prepared, folks. Eileen Blumenthal and Julie Taymor. Okay, tell us more. Which other books have you got? Oh, my God, this is so exciting. He came prepared, folks. Okay. Uh, Including the World Puppetry Survey by Eileen Blumenthal. Puppetry and Puppets, an illustrated world survey. The amazing, really large and heavy book of the Dwiggins Marionettes. Ooh. So he, he was a, a graphic designer as well, a typographer. He used to create typefaces. There's even a, a Dwiggins typeface named after him. But on no the way. side, he had his own little marionette theatre. And so th- this book contains a collection, basically an archive of his work, including these sorts, what looks like hand-pasted photos into the book of his marionettes and sets and and scenes from some of the shows. Oh my god! So that's some of the books and um, other books like the the Handspring Puppet Company book, Engineers of the Imagination for Large Scale Puppetry, and even that what looks like a little Bible <laughs> in its chunkiness about the Bread and Puppet Theatre. Okay, so this is this is a library, folks, and I think what we're going to have to do is ask Mr. Hendroff here to to send us a list of his favourite puppetry books, and perhaps we'll post them on our Twitter each day throughout the release of your episode. If you'll do that, <laughs> I might be able to. It might take a while. It might be a very long list. We're okay with that. We're we're here for puppetry. We're here for all the resources and information we can get. Wow, that sounds so fantastic. And and my God, there's so many different books out there. I was actually messaged by Kay Yasuji yesterday about a puppetry book, a puppetry book that she has uh, recently 
located a digital copy of, and I'm just going to bring it up now because it was so good. It was the Heartland Marionette Puppets, How I Make Marionettes book by Peter Heartland, the creator of the Heartland Marionettes. And it was so, so good to check this out yesterday as I was making marionettes with Danny Miller. So there is such a a wealth of information in books, believe it or not, folks. We've lost books. Let's bring them back. Leon, I also hear that you restore puppets as well. Yes, yeah. And in fact, that is a really great lead-in because some of the puppets that I've been restoring are the Heartland marionettes. No way. Because Peter Heartland was one of our pioneers of Western Australian puppetry before moving to the East Coast to do puppetry on TV and the nightclub scene there. And then came back to, um, he was an advisor to the education department here in WA on puppetry. That's right. Can you imagine having one person that you could go as a point of contact for puppetry in education? Fantastic. And he was great. And, And that's probably some of the books that you have. How I Make Marionettes, his life among the little people, his story with marionettes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he sadly has passed away now. But be, before he he did, he was also sadly suffering from Alzheimer's. And before things got really bad, he um, he handed over a whole lot of his puppets to me to try and keep this tradition of marionette art going. I'm so stunned. there is a collection of the marionettes at our um, performing arts museum here in WA under the His Majesty's Theatre and a lot of the collection is also now with me to try and keep that art form alive and I use those puppets in in teaching and workshops um, because they're so well made and Are to be able me? to this is amazing <laughs> yes yeah, so, and and I mean to be able to restore and have and to be able to see and look at intimately these puppets by such a great puppet maker and puppeteer yeah. has really helped in learning how to make marionettes myself. For sure. And so what has changed? Is, is the material the same? How, what have you learned and pulled away from restoring those beautiful historic puppets? Uh, well, I guess it's firsthand knowledge of the importance of balance and weight distribution in a well-made marionette. He used quite traditional techniques um, of paper mache heads sometimes um tops of the bodies were also paper mache or celastic (laughs) terribly toxic but strong and lightweight but he also carved a lot so lower bodies so pelvis and legs were really well weighted being made out of solid wood arms hands were carved so they had really nice responsive controls Um, what's your preferred method a combination. So I paper mache. I've also experimented a bit with um, the ready to use paper mache clays, which you can get from places like Riot Art and Craft. I've also it's experimented a with um, a clay call um, by Eberhard Faber, which is the same people that make the Fimo clay. And they have this air drying clay, which is a wood clay. So because I, I like sculpting, I could, I could sculpt in clay, but then it dries to this um, material, which I can also carve and sand and saw and drill like wood. So wow. yeah, it, it's, it's a combination, a combination of wood clays and also fabrics. I, I like working with fabrics. 
So with fabrics, you're you're talking about more of the festival style puppets that you do, or are you talking about with marionettes with fabrics? With marionettes as well. So I have I have made fabric cloth marionettes and also marionettes using felt made by my mother. Oh, I love that. <laughs> With your marionettes that you make, uh, how much influence does, do your parents have into the characterization and the, the materials that you use? Apart from just the felting, there must be others. Well, the, the felting, because once again, it's, it's a material that's at hand here <laughs> in this particular studio. No, I think we, I think they kind of leave the puppetry thing to me. <laughs> so we, we all have our different fields, like the, the interiors, the textiles and the, and the puppetry. But they they do and have helped a lot with especially the large scale puppets like the um, Puppet and String Symphony. We were all involved with weaving that over a kilometer of rope, and and lately as well we created another giant um, for a similar style production called the Last Numbat, ah, which is also nice. another giant marionette. And, yeah, so it's great to have people with skills <laughs> close at hand <laughs> when you're building 10-metre stuff. And, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's a, it's a great working relationship, I'd say. Apart from people like Peter Hartland, who are some of your favourite designers, even in puppets or in, in the design world? Because I know you come from a design background and that, in my case, certainly influences my way of designing the designers that I've learned about and know of. Who are your favourites? Well, strangely, because the puppetry passion started before I went and did the graphic design course, I would say some puppetry designers and artists have influenced my graphic design and illustration styles. And so it, it, it's this kind of play back and forth. I mean, just just off the top of my head and also probably because I have the book sitting in front of me is um, Julie Tamor and Michael Curry. Their work is just amazing. And and the work of the Handspring Puppet Company. I guess what appeals to me in, in or what comes through in a lot of these um, artists' work is you can see quite a graphic style an approach to puppet design and the visual storytelling, which I think I do bring into my work from that graphic design background, that sort of sense of visual communication and and signs and symbols and also quite clean and clear imagery because puppetry is it's such a visual form of theater and storytelling it's really important and you can tell so much story i guess the best phrase is a picture tells a thousand words and and so just with that that image of a puppet and that a well-designed character a well-designed scene it can say so much and it's almost like you're or well for me when i'm like designing in puppetry with the sets, the costumes, props and puppets. It's almost like laying out that page on a poster. And it's like when, when people look at it, it's like, first of all, it's, it's got to grab your attention. It's, it's got to hold your attention. And then as people look deeper into it, they get more information out of it. That, I think, is what I carry through and what has influenced my, um, my puppetry work in terms of the graphic design in that the face of a puppet 
can be like a, a great laid out typeface, <laughs> a piece of text. <laughs> it's, it tells a story. It's really important what we show and what we tell visually in puppetry because you can get so much of the story from what you see before you hear the words or before you hear the music. And then when you add those dimensions, it just takes it to another level and you get so much more out of it. It's, it's like the layers of a burger. <laughs> <laughs> you also, uh, as we mentioned, we, we met at a, a workshop in which you taught me how to build my first grumble, my first uh, large-scale puppet. And, you know, your approach to teaching was through so many visual examples and you had a great material knowledge. If you were to impart to our audience something about material knowledge or about teaching, how do you structure your workshops and what kinds of workshops do you hope to run in the future? Well, I hope to run as many different workshops as, as I can in the future. I'd love to do more with marionettes. Um, I have been doing a lot lately with large-scale puppetry, which is the one you have mentioned. I guess in terms of materials... It would be to choose carefully what materials best suits the puppet you're making and the purpose that it has. You can, or sometimes I feel even for myself, I can get too familiar with a set of skills, materials or methods, whereas sometimes maybe that might not be the best solution for that particular puppet that I'm making at the time. Carving a wooden puppet, it, it works fantastic for, for marionettes. But, I mean, as an extreme example, I wouldn't do it for a giant puppet. But also that is in the case of depending on how that puppet's going to be controlled or used. So I think in terms of materials, the, the practical choices are really important. And then the getting back to that, that point that I made earlier about the puppet visually storytelling and, and it as a symbol, the choice of material that you use for a puppet, maybe a wooden puppet tells you a different story about its character when you see wood, wood grain, the texture and colour of wood, as opposed to a puppet maybe made out of metal. So mm. so we've got that that practical choice of materials and then you've mm. got the how would I say, the, the visual meaning choice of the materials. And then also, I guess, when it comes back to the, the familiarity of um, materials to, to specific makers, I mean, they, they may be able to manipulate a certain material really well because they're comfortable with it. And so the quality of the end product then is influenced by the skill of that particular maker and and the materials and choices that they choose. Mm. So I suppose there's there's those three main choices and there's probably a whole lot more, but in terms of practical aesthetics and what you're good at, what what you have at close at hand really influences the choice of puppet making materials. Leon, your approach to materials also informs the way in which you reduce, reuse, recycle and, and how you think about sustainability because I know a lot of the materials that you do use are not generally biodegradable. And so how do you approach when working with rubber and you know hose pipes and, and, and cable ties, how do you actually approach your ability to stay sustainable in your practice? So I guess that also, I mean, it, sustainability is 
such a broad um, encompassing term. So, I mean, sustainable for me also plays plays into the fact that sometimes I need a puppet that is not so disposable. I need something that will last indefinitely, is really durable, lightweight and strong. And so plastics have, have been a really good solution to that. And so I guess it's, it's used wisely in that it, it's used for that specific purpose. So it's like we want it to last. It, it's not going to be disposed of quickly. The waste materials need to be disposed of thoughtfully. But also I try to um, not have as much waste as possible or to reduce that amount of waste. For example, the, the cable ties or offcuts of the plastics, if there are any offcuts, I use them. Like I, I chop them up, I, I use them in, in little bags as weights for mari- for cloth marinettes and other little bits of plastic never go to waste as, as washes and joints and other little mech parts. And also a lot of garden plastic products that I've been using have also already been made from recycled plastic. So it's going through a second life already. Yeah, so it's that that choice of what you buy when you buy it and then how you use it, how you dispose of it and thinking thoughtfully about every part of that. We are running out of time, so I'm going to ask you the big question. Lastly, in your puppet journey, is there anyone you would like to thank and tell us why? Okay, I would like to thank someone that unfortunately is not with us anymore but it's the person who got me into puppetry in the beginning who was my primary school drama teacher so um penny mcburney all those years ago in the inglewood primary school (laughs) she she did this little puppet show for us because she had a little puppet theater on the side to teaching one day she used our class as a a test audience for a show that she was developing and pretty much from that that show, a few minutes into that show, I was hooked onto puppetry and it's been an ongoing journey since. So I think, and and she she encouraged that interest and lent me books and like knowing that there isn't really much, and especially back then that there wasn't really much opportunity to, to learn that art form anywhere. She she lent me her, her puppetry books. I mean, th- these are, professional puppetry books that she was lending to an eight, nine-year-old. Wow. So it's like she, that trust with the material and that encouragement to pursue it, I'm really grateful for. And and there have been other people like that throughout my puppetry journey. But this is the person who started it and I'm very grateful for it. Leon, we are out of time. Thank you so much for talking sock with us today. You can find Leon by Google searching Leon Hendroff and you'll find his website and you'll find his profile in Spare Parts Puppet Theatre. Thanks for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we'll talk sock again soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at Talking Sockcast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials, and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at One Orange Sock Productions and check out our episode blog at oneorangesock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. 
Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangetalk.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon with another great episode of Talking Sock. Talking Sock.